in Genesis. We'll be going verse by verse, just like we did with Mark and various other books recently here on Tuesday nights. I've not taught the Old Testament for four years here at Worship Generation, so excited to begin an Old Testament book. The book of, Mo- of Genesis is ascribed to Moses as the author, of course, the Holy Spirit, but through Moses. And it's also not only the book of Genesis, but it's considered one of the books of the law, right? Because when the Bible refers to the law, it's the first five books ascribed to Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also known as the Pentateuch. So it's also part of the Pentateuch, if you will. And it's also part of the historical book. So Genesis gets it all started for us. And tonight we're going to be in chapter one. And because it's such an important chapter, I'm going to read the whole chapter first, just to get the whole chapter out there, because it's God's account of the origins for us, how we got here, who made us, how we were made, how God observed it, and there's plenty of application. So we're going to begin with just reading the whole chapter, and then we've got different parts we're going to look at concerning the character of God and the nature of God and the purposes of humanity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light and the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and so, and it was so, and God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so, and God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmaments of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmaments of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with the abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmaments of heaven. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said that the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. And then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now next week when we look at chapter 2, we get a greater detail of more in detail of God making man and woman and the purposes of them in the garden and the things that God had for them. So this is in the beginning, and that is our topic, in the beginning. Everything has a beginning. You and I had a beginning. At the point of conception, we were one cell. Isn't that amazing to think about that? When the Bible says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalm 139, you and I have a beginning. We were one cell. It's amazing. We were one cell in our mother's womb. One cell. And that DNA with all the millions of distinct details in it would determine our eyes, our personalities, our interests, our skin pigmentation, our gender, all those things. And that one cell would reproduce itself over and over from the beginning. And not only that, in that one cell was also the capacity and the intelligence for us to reproduce other human beings, both from the male and female side as well. So not only are we our own being at one cell at the point of creation, the master blueprint is there, the DNA, but within that DNA is the ability to make other human beings from that one cell. Isn't that amazing? We all have a beginning. So take your birthday and just go about nine months past that, right? So March 21st, 1961, Summer of 1960, somewhere there, Joey Brand was conceived in Diane Brand's womb as one cell, and thus I'm still going here, 58 years of life, and rolling forward. We all have a beginning. There are beginnings and endings, aren't there? We know that. When you go to any cemetery, like the one by Walmart there in Huntington Beach off Slater, you go in that cemetery, there's a name, there's a beginning, and there's an ending. There's a beginning and an ending, and usually a dash, or some nice phrase written to summarize that person's life, and there's a purpose of the life, or a legacy of the life, for good or for evil, however people might interpret it. But there's a beginning, and this universe has a beginning. And of course, in the Old Testament, God said that the things that reveal belong to us and to our children, but the secret things belong to the Lord. And we're also told, as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts and his ways above us. And maybe you're like this at any time in your life, but particularly when I was young, I thought about this a lot. I very distinctly remember growing up in Quantico, Virginia, in first, second, and third grade there on the military base. And we'd go to the, the chapel on base, and I was raised Catholic. And I would think about God. I would lay in bed and think about God. I'd go in the woods by myself when you could do things like that. And I would look for box turtles. I'd go down the Potomac River, and I... God was in my thoughts. I was very uh, cognitively aware of God. I thought about God as a young child. And I said this many times, there never was a time in my life where I did not believe in God. 
But the one thing that would stump me at times and just kind of trip me out, if you will, in my first grade, second grade, third grade mind is my origin and God's origin. Like, so I know I came from God this way, but where did God come from? But of course, that's a, that's a question that no one could ever answer because he's always been and he always will be, and he's outside of our dimension. So when we read this phrase in the beginning, we have to understand that God, that's not God's beginning. God has no beginning and ending. He's infinite. And we tend to think linear like a parade. The Huntington Parade is going to be happening in a couple of days. And if you want to, on the Huntington Parade, you can ride your bike really early in the morning, and you can go down there when the parade starts and turns from PCH southbound and pulls up Main Street and goes all the way down to Yorktown in the shopping center there. You could follow the parade to where it's lined up, and the parade has a beginning, and it has an ending. And it's linear. It's linear. And all the dog and pony shows that go on throughout the parade, the bands and the floats and everything else, it has a start and a finish. And we often think linear. And when we think about time, our timeline, I think linear. I think 1961, Kennedy was president, and I just go from there. Or when you're filling out something online and you got to scroll down to your birth year, like your birth year, some of you hit the 90s and you're there, some hit the 80s and you're there, some hit the 70s and you're there. I go all the way in the 60s. My brother goes to the 50s, right? Okay, so that's linear. In my mind, when I think about time, I just see everything like the scroll bar you see when you're doing dates. But that's linear. What we need to understand about in the beginning with God is he's not linear. So it's not like Adam and Eve are created here at at the beginning, which they clearly were, and that God has a beginning before that, and somewhere in that linear plane, there's a start for God. That's not the case. God's of a different dimension, and he doesn't have a beginning. He has no beginning or ending. He's infinite. In fact, the best title for God that describes God is the one he gave himself when Moses asked him at the burning bush, who do I say sent me? And he said, say that I am that I am has sent you, the all, the all self-sustaining one. So he's made clear that our finite minds cannot understand his infinite wisdom, nature, existence, at least not in this dimension. But we're to receive it by faith for our origin and understanding of the purpose of our life and we receive it by faith for obedience of our life and receive by faith all the other promises he gives us so that when we step into eternity and we step into eternity into a different dimension that we enter his dimension we also know concerning dimensions that adam and eve came were created in this dimension in time space and matter but we know that the angels existed out of this dimension previously So that's another fact in this equation because, of course, Satan is in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, and he was cast out of heaven, as Scripture interprets Scripture, and he's outside this dimension as well. And we're told that even his fallen angels and his armies are principalities and powers or organized forces in the spiritual realm or the heavenlies. So when we think about in the beginning, this beginning is time, space, and matter. This is the origin of all that we call science, true science. Our existence in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth so from another dimension not bound by time space or matter God created it and spoke it in existence but we do see in chapter 2 of all the things he made he spoke everything but he formed man and woman personally also in his image interestingly enough 
So that's worth noting, the distinction which separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom and everything else that's in time, space, and matter is that we are his crown jewel. Jesus didn't come and die for my animals or your animals. He came and died for us because we act like animals and live like animals as sinners, born sinners, rebels against God. But we're created in his image. All the other things created in the universe that goes in its order, they reflect his glory as it's declared throughout the scriptures in so many places. But you and I, humanity, however beautiful we might be, or however scarred we might be with the decisions we've made in life, from the point of conception, one cell, our beginning, were an overflow of the beginning and created in his image for his purposes. And as Billy Graham would say, we're created to be saved by the Redeemer who also created us, and then upon being saved, we're saved to serve and fulfill our purposes. And everything is a redemption from these first two chapters. The first two chapters of the Bible are beautiful and sin-free, the last two chapters of the Bible are beautiful and sin-free. Everything else in between is the story of redemption, blood, sacrifice, and sin, atonement, and grace, and mercy, and judgment, and all those things. So in the beginning, this is our origin. There are only really two possible worldviews, and there are basically the, the, the marketplace of worldviews for origin are two. There's only two real possibilities. The biblical record that God, who does things with order and design. Think of the tabernacle. Think of everything he does has order and design. There's randomness, but there's order and design. That God, this is his record, and we either believe this and receive this by faith, or we don't and reject it through unbelief. But either way, whether it's God making it in a literal six days or the secular humanist view of the Big Bang and evolution and Darwinism, they're incompatible for a number of reasons, which I'll get into tonight. But it's one of two worldviews, and of course they both require faith. All this order and design came from something, and cause and effect says the effect is always equal to, the, 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 cause, the cause that causes the effect is either equal or greater than the effect. So the order and design that we have in this universe has a cause. Our sun, the perfect place in the universe, our planet, the perfect distance, our angle, the perfect angle, the, 38, the 36 components that make up our oxygen that we breathe, the perfect amount of things. I mean, we can't even find anything remotely close to inhabitable in the universe. But this planet is perfectly inhabitable for human beings, and it's to this planet that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, creator and savior of the universe, came to. The perfect distance from the sun, the perfect temperature, all the sustainable things that we need to live, design and order. We believe that through the creation account. In the beginning, God created. Or we believe that through disorder and chaos and mutations, they got lucky through millions and billions of years, which keeps changing. This record's never changed from the time that God revealed it to Moses. The evolutionary record has changed many, many times in just the last three generations. On the age of the earth, by their interpretation, the human record, all that stuff, it changes constantly. And they don't even agree. We often think that they agree uniformly on their evolutionist beliefs. They do not at all. Most evolutionists have very contrasting views, but the common denominator is they're atheistic in that they reject God's personal involvement in the origin of humanity. So their origin is one uh, where a rock, inanimate matter, became living and came to life. And out of disorder comes order. Out of death, by Darwinistic worldviews, comes life and order. 
Now remember, those worldviews shaped the philosophy of every evil, tyrannical, authoritarian government that we've watched almost destroy the human race in the last 200 years. Just keep that in mind. God's worldview is one of order. We're a God of love with specific purpose and design, knowing the hairs on your head, created this universe, as he said, created humanity, as he has, values all humanity, however flawed it is, and has a plan for every human being and has a purpose for all of our lives. One has no purpose and it's dumb luck and random. One has absolute purpose with divine origin and accountability. One has faith in God as the creator and establisher of the universe. The other has faith in unscientific belief systems to account for origin. Pastor Chuck used to say, and I've heard him say it, the lack of, the lack of people believing in creation in a young earth is not because there's a lack of evidence. It's because they choose to rebel against the one who created it. It's not for lack of scientific evidence. Or even more importantly, biblical record. Because the Bible always proves itself against any pseudoscience or archaeology that would seem to contradict the Bible. It always ends up proving itself. Let God be true and every man a liar. And it is. It is a science book. It's a book of history. It's a book of origins. Now, those are two choices. When our kids go away to colleges, they have professors that get up and say, you got lucky. And from a rock came life that just kept evolving and ultimately became a human being through enough chaos and disorder. Or very few professors, but there are some. Remember, Pastor Jeremy is technically a professor, and he taught for years science. And that there's purpose and order and design. One produces the culture and society that we now see where the ancient boundaries are removed. The other preserves life and defends life. The legacy of these two worldviews in the last 200 years and what they've brought to humanity compared to each other, one brings life and one brings death. One serves people and loses his life for the glory of Christ. The other rules over people and takes life for the glory of man and the exaltation of men. They're only two. They're not compatible because God's not the author of death. Man is. And God doesn't work through death apart from his son dying to give us life. So in the beginning, it's the book of origin. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, God has revealed a few things about himself in this chapter. The first one is his actual substance. The word God there in the Hebrew is Elohim in the Hebrew. And it means it's translated gods in other places. And it literally is what we call a uniplural noun. So it means more than one within one. This term is also used for marriage where the man and the woman are one. The two become one. They're distinct, but they're one. So it's an interesting phrase, the idea of the compound unity, a uniplural noun like it has in that description of marriage. So Elohim, gods, or God more than one within one. Because I am the Lord, there's no other. So God's not... There's not multiple gods like the Greek gods or the Roman gods who took the names of Greek gods and gave them Roman names, like Neptune, Poseidon, stuff like that, one and the same, but God. Now, when he refers to himself in the Old Testament as God Almighty, it's Yahweh, the Lord, which traditionally is translated all uppercase capitals L-O-R-D. It's not Elohim or El even, like El Shaddai or those other interpretations where it's just El, God singular. It's Elohim. So the very first verse of the Bible 
the word Elohim is used in God revealing himself to humanity and to the human record. He's more than one within one, but he is one. And the very next verse is interesting because the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So the Holy Spirit's introduced to us in the second verse of the Bible. So we see God's triune nature in the very second verse. Then in verse 26 we read where God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So it's our, it's, it's a pluralization of the phrase, but God is one, I am the Lord, there is no other. So harmonizing scripture, we see that God is triune in his nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, who's literally in time, space, and matter, and the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The same thing at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaking while Jesus is there. Because some of the cults will say that God revealed himself this way in the Old Testament, this way with Jesus, and this way with the Holy Spirit, that he took on three different forms at three different times. That's not correct. That's totally heretical and uh, damnable theology. God is triune in nature. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also know in the New Testament when we think about Jesus, though he's not personally mentioned in this chapter, we know in Revelation he's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And we also know from Hebrews chapter 1 that nothing exists that wasn't made that Jesus didn't make. We're told in Colossians that all things that are made by him and for him and him all things consist. We're told in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was made that was not made but by the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is ascribed as a creator of the universe within the Scripture. And when you study the Bible, which is hermeneutics, the science of biblical study, Scripture interprets Scripture. And the more random one verse is, it doesn't take away from it, but if you have one random verse and you have continuity of 30 verses, those 30 verses interpret the one random verse. You follow me? So in hermeneutics, we know that the Holy Spirit's revelation is that everything was not only made by Christ and for Christ and him consists, but it's all for him. So everything made is for Jesus Christ as the creator, and he's holding it all together right now. He's the atomic glue holding this universe together right now is Jesus Christ. So in verse 1 and verse 2, we see God, Elohim, triune in nature. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the earth. And we also see that Jesus Christ, with complementary verses from the New Testament, is the creator. The creative element of the universe is ascribed to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in his triune nature. So in essence, God is triune in nature. This is very important because like, the, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God the Father made God the Son and then made everything through God the Son. They give him a lesser place. But they're all Father, Son, and Spirit are omniscient, all present, all powerful. They share the exact same substance in different form with distinctly different personalities. And you say, I don't understand that. Well, you know, that's what I used to think about when I was six years old too. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. Just because a human mind does not understand God's triune nature does not make him not triune. Truth is truth, and it will always stand for what it is. You are who you are, whether your husband or wife or your relatives understand you or not. You are who you are. And God is who he is in his essence being triune. And we need to understand that at the dawn of creation. In the beginning, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created the universe. 
Jesus is holding the universe together. All things in the universe are for Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is working on this planet to draw people to himself as, his, as the creator and the savior for them. He's everyone's creator, but he's not everyone's savior, right? We understand that. So God created, and he made it, verses 1 and 2. Now, we read on in verse, verses 3 through 5, we have the first day. And it says, then God said, let there be light. God saw the light, it was good. Light was good. In the dimension that God comes from with his throne room, from which Satan was cast out, Jesus said, I saw Satan cast out. That dimension's just, you know, it might be like a portal some way, somewhere, but it's another dimension. Multi-dimension is hard for us to understand, but it, the universe is multi-dimensional, for sure. And so, in this dimension, out of that darkness, God spoke time, space, and matter. And there was the darkness, but time, space, and matter were working. And then he drew the distinction of light and darkness. And it was good. So we're going to see this phrase, it was good. So we need to understand, this is what's compared to between creationism and evolutionism. Creation is good. Evolution is death. It's not good. The whole belief system is, is just a damnable philosophy of origin of the, from the pit of hell. And there's no compatibility with it to the gospel and God's account of creation and order. None. But it was good. Everything God did was good. There's nothing good about animals eating other animals. I've never liked it. When I was a kid, our guppies ate their babies, and it made me sick. Now, that's kind of a silly thing to say, the, the, but the mother guppy had babies, and then she attacked her babies. Let me tell you something. Before the fall, and I've said this for years, before the fall, there was a time when guppies did not eat their baby guppies. You saw, if you read the text, that everything was vegetarian. There was no, there was no meat eating here in the garden in chapter 1. It was a vegetarian world. Now, interesting note, little side note, parenthetical. Plants live and die, but their death is different than human beings and animals. Plants actually die and reproduce, right? A grain of wheat goes in the ground, and what, what does it do? It brings forth a crop. The life of an oak tree is an acorn. The, the way God set up the cellular structure and the way plants work is completely different in their perceived death because from their death comes life. And the system was in place to provide food for all this planet when God set up everything. So, yeah, plants get eaten, and the whole process of uh, elimination from the body and whatnot, the plants would still reproduce because from their death they come alive, just like it's in the seed. And we saw the seed is in itself. The seed is within itself to produce more. So that is a distinction because that was already in place. That has nothing to do with death and the consequence of Adam's sin on the universe, which the Bible says the whole universe is dying because of Adam's sin, the head of our race, Romans 8 and other places. So... The substance was there, and it was good. So everything was good. Everything was good. But he said, let there be light. God saw the light was good, and God divided light. Now, this is important because there is distinction between light and darkness on the first day. Distinction between light and darkness physically. Now, in the Gospel of John, the first four verses are very similar to the first five verses of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing was made that wasn't made without the Word. And he is the light and the life of men. In fact, in the Gospel of John, as the account goes there, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Distinction. Now, we know throughout the New Testament, even with Jesus' teaching, when he healed the blind man in the Gospel of John, and they said, are we blind too? Well, if you say you see when you're blind, you're blind. But if you say you're blind and you believe, then you'll see. He drew the distinctions of light and darkness. In other words, the physical light and darkness we see here in Genesis on the first day is a type, really, of spiritual light and darkness after the fall. Because even like when it talks about the rapture of the church, we are children of what? The light and children of the day. So we don't walk like those who walk at night in darkness. And we're told not to walk in darkness, but to walk in light as children of the light. Jesus said that he is the light and the life of men. But men love darkness and they don't come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. So it is very interesting the contrast, the physical contrast of light and darkness. And they can never coexist. Either these lights are on in here or they're off. We're either in the light or in darkness. We don't have light and darkness. They don't, they're mutually exclusive of each other. Light and darkness. It's one or the other. And if anyone be in Christ in new creation, all things have passed away, all things are new. But in Adam, all sin and die, and in Christ, all are made alive. There's not a gray, amb ambiguous area in moral things with God any more than there's a gray, ambiguous area in the physical things of light and darkness in God's universe. And what is hell? It is outer darkness. There are descriptions of hell. It is to be by yourself. It is to be self-condemned. It is to be rejected by Christ when the books are open in Revelation 20. It is to bow the knee and confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father before you go in outer darkness and you're by yourself. It's a place of torment and there's no deliverance from it whatsoever. It is eternally set in motion in another dimension. It's the exact opposite of the kingdom because in heaven, in the new heaven and new earth, the presence of God is the light that's brighter than the sun and there's no need for a sun because his presence is the light. His kingdom in eternity described for us in the last two chapters of Revelation and other places is a kingdom of light. There is a distinction. And even so, in the last two chapters of Revelation, there, the, what's pure is pure, what's defiled is defiled, right? It says it's this or it's that. And this is what's in the kingdom, and this is what's out. And there's distinction. There's no, our society and humanity has a history of loving moral ambiguity, gray areas, with God, things are true or they're false. They're right or they're wrong. There's justification or condemnation. There's in Christ or in Adam. There's heaven and there's hell. There's with the Lord and the saints for all eternity or there's an outer darkness by yourself imploding on yourself. And it is one or the other in the next dimension. So God has the distinction of light and darkness here on the first day and that distinction though physical on a literal day I mean it's a literal day the evening and morning was the first day if he wanted to say ages he would have said ages if he wanted to tell us we came from a monkey he'd tell us we came from a monkey we came from his image let us make man in our image if you want to tell us we came from a fish he'd tell us we came from a fish or an alligator let us make man in our image and it is blasphemous to try and describe humanity coming from anything other than the handiwork of God himself in Genesis 2. I call it blasphemy because it attacks his character because everything he did is good and everything about evolution is not good. It was good and there's a distinction. It's incompatible views. 
There are people that try to harmonize those views, but it's incompatible. The Hebrew word here means literal day. It's the only translation that you can have with this word. There are different Hebrew words for ages. So if you want to say the ages, like the ice age in the post-flood world, you could use that word describing a, a century or a couple centuries. But this is the word for days, like today, July 2nd. That's the word. God says what he means, he means what he says. That's also a principle of hermeneutics. <laughs> you read the Bible at face value, and you let God speak. So the distinction is really important for us. Now, as we look at verses 6 through 23, we get the sequences of days. So the first thing is light and darkness. The second day was the atmosphere separation in the water, separated from the atmosphere and the various levels of the stratosphere and all that kind of stuff. So we see there in verse 8 that the evening and the morning were the second day. So there's a literal second day. And then we get verses uh, 9 through 13, the third day, where he separates the, the, the waters there and the land comes out of the water. God saw that it was good there in verse 10. It's still good. Verse 13, God saw that it was good. Excuse me, verse 12, God saw that it was good. So that even the morning were the third day. So that's day three. Day four, the, the lights and firmaments of heaven to divide the day from the night and to let them be signs, let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. We do have seasons. Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon said really well about how there's a, a, a time and purpose for everything under heaven, to everything turn, turn, and we have different seasons of life. And God has given us the calendar year to mark those seasons. And it's amazing how fast time goes by, isn't it? It really is amazing. It's just the kids grow up. Anniversaries go from 5 to 10 to 20 to 30. The, the kids have grandkids. The grandkids grow up, and then you're thinking, like, do I have enough money for the back 10, 15 years? It just, it just is what it is. The calendar year is equal to all of us. It's not any longer or shorter for anyone else on this planet. We share this planet with all humanity, and if you're born in 61, March, you're 58. And you can try and delay that, but you can't. Paul, when he spoke to the Athenians who were uh, actually Darwinist in their own way, he said, God has appointed our times and seasons and our boundaries. And he's appointed a day when we'll all give an account to the man he's determined to be the judge of all, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he, he addressed their faulty theology with biblical theology in the person of Jesus Christ as the judge of all. So we have different seasons. There were signs and seasons before the post-flood world. Now, after the flood, we get the seasons of the you know, autumn, winter, and those things. The pre-flood world, the primeval world, did not have the seasons, the four seasons as we know them. The post-flood world does have them. But still, by God's design, he says that there were signs, the, the stars move the way they move. I love listening to those old Pastor Chuck studies where he talks about the stars. If you know what I'm talking about, you know, he knew all the constellations. He was so smart. And when he's teaching the Psalms and other books where it gets on the stars, he just takes these rabbit trails where he loves to talk for like 10, 20 minutes about the constellations and where they are and what they do in God's handiwork because the stars, they shift in seasons. My son Timmy in his maritime training, he had to study the constellations because, of course, in seamanship, you navigate through constellations. When your computers aren't working, you can chart right off the stars and use your calculus or basic math for all. I don't know, but if I'm on a ship like that, I want him on that ship because he knows, and I don't. But uh, it, they're there, and they speak, and they reveal seasons. 
when God rebuked Job, he said, were you there when I made all these constellations? God brags about the constellations to Job. They declare me. So David wrote, you know, the heavens declare your glory. What is man that you're mindful of him when he looked at the stars? When God made a promise to Abraham that from his descendants would come the Messiah and an entire nation, he says, look to the stars. I'm going to give you more children than what you can see in the heavens from a woman who was barren. God used the stars, not just for seasons, but it's like, wow, you know, space, the final frontier, right? You know, it's like the stars, they're amazing. They're glorious. Whenever I see pictures of like black holes and supernovas, I just go like, wow. Like as amazing that is, it still comes back to planet Earth because everything God did in this universe revolves around his son coming to this planet to die for you and me to redeem us, his creation. It's amazing. So he made, this, he made the constellations and all that, the sun and the moon, and we see there in verse 18 that it was good. Then verse 20 through 23, God made the water abound with the abundance of living creatures. This would include all the dinosaurs in the water. Of course, in the book of Job, he talks about Leviathan, this massive sea creature. Living creatures, birds that fly across the earth, the face, the firmaments, the heavens. So the, the, the ocean life, and the, the, the birds there on the fifth day. God saw that was good. He blessed them, saying, He blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And they did. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then that 24 through 26, excuse me, 25, we see the first part of the sixth day. So the first part of the sixth day, the literal sixth day, God made the insect world, the mammal world, and the, the reptiles, all that stuff, the dinosaurs, all of it right here on this sixth day. And each according to its kind, and so it was. You know, if you study the fossil record, and there are billions of fossils, you only find in the fossil record each according to its own kind. You don't find cogs and dats, okay? You find dogs and cats. Each is according to its own kind. The fossil record affirms exactly what the Bible says. Also, if you study ancient cultures, what's the one thing almost every ancient civilization brags about? Killing giant dragons? Yeah. Because dinosaurs co-inhabited the earth with humanity before the flood and probably to some portion after the flood. But like so many other creatures on the planet, they're extinct. You know, there's a lot of rhinoceroses that are extinct. There's a lot of animals that have become extinct in the last 200 years. Man has a way of killing things and making them extinct. Look what they're trying to do to save all the wildlife in Africa right now. They can't stop it. All the poachers, desperate people in desperate countries. You can study almost any ancient civilization, and you will find three common denominators. Pictures and artwork of human beings with giant dragons, some form of an origin of an original man and a woman and a flood of judgment. You can do the homework yourself and you can find that to be true. But you can go to Institute Creation Research and see the summarization of it all. Almost every ancient civilization has men with giant dragons, a flood account, local or global, and an original man and a woman, which makes sense because from Noah's three sons came humanity and the record of humanity. That's where we're going to study this in Genesis chapter 9 and 10 and 11. You know, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 are the most attacked chapters of the Bible because the devil knows if you discredit Genesis 1 through 11, you discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You see, because sin, the reason we need a Savior is because we're sinners. And we all sin in Adam. In Adam, all sin as the head of our race. We are born in sin because of Adam, not because of an ape that got lucky. We are sinners because we're descendants of Adam, the head of our race. And when he sinned, we're in agreement with him. We're in the loins of him, agreeing with him as his descendants. Jesus Christ died on the cross because we cannot save ourselves, Galatians says. For his righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain, but he did not die in vain. And Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. There was no other way. Jesus died on the cross with his shed blood to redeem sinners who are descendants of Adam. And it was the only way to save us. And when asked about marriage, Jesus said, have you not read in the beginning how he made them male and female? Origin, gender, marriage. The two shall become one. Jesus affirmed the flood as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. But if in pseudo-intellectualism you can shift a young person or any person from the belief that Genesis 1 through 11 is historical, literal, Holy Spirit-inspired, you can remove them from needing Jesus as a Savior. And you can remove the belief in the second coming of Christ, too. What did Peter say? They say, oh, you know, where's the flood? What? Like, it's every key biblical doctrine is in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They are the most attacked chapters of the Bible. And well-intended men have surrendered these passages to try and appease godless, reprobate men with pseudoscience and have never been successful in convincing them to convert to Christ. I don't believe in ID, intelligent design. I believe in Jesus Christ, who is the designer. That's just something to appease super pseudo-intellectual people who don't want to be converted anyways because they believe in Darwinism because they don't want to believe in God as their origin. Let God be true and every man a liar. And God is light and him is no darkness at all. He's distinct. Is good. And then the last thing on that sixth day that he made, and it was good, verse 25, we saw in verse 26 through 31, let us make man our image. So God created man, verse 27, in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth. So the entire creation was subject to humanity in its pre-fallen world. Now, when we get to Genesis 3, we'll talk about how that was forfeited and then redeemed by Jesus in Revelation 5. But for now, it's just, it's such a, by the way, isn't this a happy chapter? This is like a feel-good, fluffy, happy chapter. You know, when you read about, like, the raping of Dinah later on in Genesis, I don't like that chapter. When you read about, Lot, uh, you know, Lot's house, the angels come trying to rape the angels, I don't like that chapter. Book of Judges, when the woman gets raped and they cut her body in pieces, I don't like that chapter. There's some chapters of the Bible I do not like. I still read them every time I go through the Bible. I like Genesis 1. And you should, too. But here's the most beautiful thing about Genesis 1. We have to ask ourselves this question. Because since everything was made for us, at, you know, by God for us, and it's our stewardship, he's given us the food, the vegetation, it was all there. And it's emphasized there in verse 31, then God saw everything he made was indeed very good, so that even the morning were the sixth day. You know, Genesis 1, everything is good, it's very good. It's the most blessed existence that this planet's ever known. It was before sin and death and that shock wave like a sound wave that went out through the entire universe killing the universe bringing entropy upon the universe 
decreasing the energy of our sun, decreasing the energy of the universe that expands, it all happened the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against God and rejected his authority over them and chose the rebellion over the love and submission to his authority. But it is good, and it's a reminder to us before we go our way tonight that God is good. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, life is hard. We've been talking about this. And Genesis will prove it once, you know, when we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, life is hard. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Life is hard. And like I said recently, you think life's hard in 2019? How about the medieval age in Europe? I'd like to be a Protestant reformer in Europe around 1550 in Central Europe. See how that worked. How'd you like to be, you know, the vast majority of the world makes about $2.50 a day trying to get one meal in what they do. The vast majority of the world right now. Life has always been hard. But before sin, it was good. And everything God wants to do in our life is good. Everything he's going to do is very good. The carbon prints of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit on my life and your life as individuals, on our marriages, on our children, on the stewardship of our resources, on our lives, what we put our hands to the plow for, whatever we do with our life, it is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And here's the question we ask ourselves as we go here tonight. When Jesus Christ comes to establish his kingdom and he makes a new heaven and new earth, would we say he's going to equal this? Will it be less than chapter 1? Will it be equal to chapter 1? Or will it be better than chapter 1? Let's think that through. God's perfect. And in him there's no darkness at all. So the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and the coming king coming, do you think that it's just a little bit short? It's still a glory day that's never quite attained to again. Or do you think it's a glory that's actually equaled? We got it back. Or do you think it's a glory that's even greater? I think it's greater because the Bible itself says, eyes not seen nor ear heard those things that God has prepared for those who love him. And I can project imagination from what's revealed here, but the glory to come is not worthy to be compared to the light afflictions that we presently have, the eternal weight of glory, and they cannot be described to us. Because when Paul saw the glory, he said, I cannot describe one word. This is an entire chapter describing to us origin and the beginning that was lost. But when God's trying to tell you and me, followers of Christ, through faith in his word, what we're going to gain in the next dimension, he can't describe it. Because our intellect and our cognitive capacities, even being born of the spirit with the mind of the spirit, are incapable and incapable of grasping the glory that's to come. We're just told, as he is, we will be. And... You can read those last few chapters of Revelation and go like, well, it sounds kind of cool, you know? But like, you know, the cube city, and it's like, whoo! It's, it's a surpassing glory. The death of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb not only set straight what was lost here, it's, an, it's a, a new improved version. The new heaven and the new earth, I'm quite certain I'm willing to stand before the Lord and give an account for these words tonight. It's better than what we just read. And by the way, what we just read is really good. And next week's really good, too. It all kind of goes downhill in chapter 3. Okay, <laughs> this, this is good. All right, so God is good. 
And if he has design and order and purpose and origin for this universe, we can be sure to the hairs on your head, he certainly does to our lives on a daily basis. That's our application. God is good, and in God is light, in him is no darkness at all. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and trust in the Lord at all times.